besides your natural family that you grew up with, um, there were other families that made their way into our living rooms, uh, some on TGIF and some on other primetime evenings. Uh, but this generation will be growing up with families like the Bluths, the Crawleys, the Hex, the Whites. You don't want to grow up with that family. The Goldbergs. Um, families that regularly showed up in my home growing up were the, the Simpsons, but don't tell my mom. All right? Mom. I didn't watch them when you were around. Uh, um, the Huxtables, Tim the Toolman Taylor, <laughs> you know. Um, the Sopranos, also, again, don't tell my mom. Um, the Wilkerson's, and if you did not know, that is the last name of the Malcolm in the Middle family, only used twice during the show. Um, the Tanners, the Winslows, but really, it's just everybody wanted to be friends with Steve Urkel. That's what we wanted, really. Um, but probably my favorite would have been the Banks family. You know, I always thought the Fresh Prince and I had so much in common, but really, we, our stories kind of part ways around the time a couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in his neighborhood, and then our stories go separate ways. Um, so with that in mind, I would have been fine being Jason, Garris, Simpson, Huxtable, Taylor, Soprano, Wilkerson, Tanner, Winslow, Banks. And I know for some of you, maybe you grew up with the Sanfords, the Ricardos, the Partridges, the Bradys, the Nelsons, the Munsters, the Keatons, the Jeffersons, and don't forget the Adams family. <clears throat> Ideal family situation or not, there were a lot of us who said, man, I would love to be a heck or a Banks, or a Ricardo. They weren't perfect families, but to belong. Like, we just want to belong. And that's what we want. And if we understand God's all-encompassing plan, if we understand Genesis to Revelation, it's what he actually made us for. Why we sense that longing to belong is because he put it in us. Like, I can tell you how desperate we are to belong when I hear people say, dude, I would have loved to have been a part of Lost. <laughs> what? How broken are you, man? There's a smoke monster running around eating people and you wish you were a part of that community? People are like, oh man, I would love to have a situation kind of like what Seinfeld is. And I'm like, those people are the most broken human beings in the world, but you want to be best friends with them. I can tell you how bad we want to belong by the way that we say, oh, I'd be a part of that. And the reason I think we want to be a part of those things is because we see them struggle together. We see them wrestle through things together, and we long for that community, but sometimes the family, the natural family that we find ourselves in, we kind of check out of and we forget those things. For some of us, these desires to belong to a television family wasn't a slam against our natural family. It would just be cool to be Carlton's brother, right? I mean, like, I want to be Carlton's brother. For some of us, it was an escape because we did not have an ideal family situation. And we were like, man, I'd love to have been a part of that. Some of you like to laugh at the struggles that these television families had because you were in the midst of your own. Some of you, you didn't grow up with any kind of family, and so the idea of family in general kind of turns you off, that you kind of detested 
by the idea of together because you've survived by yourself for so long. You will find the more you look into the gospel, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, in the entire narrative from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you will see God's story involving family. The hope to belong that we all have. You and I were made for a family, a family beyond what our natural family experience was, to truly being the family of God. There is a longing in us, there is a desire in us, because the Lord put it there. Last week when, he, when we started our time looking at Jesus' family, they, they decided to start heading to where Jesus was because they heard Jesus wasn't eating. They heard that Jesus and his disciples were working themselves, they weren't sleeping, they weren't eating, but they were doing the Lord's work. And then we have the the Pharisees show up and they badmouth Jesus, saying he's possessed by Satan. Now, where we're at this morning, Jesus' family actually makes it to Jesus. So they heard about it, and they started on this journey 30 or 40 miles away, and they make their way to meet with Jesus. And in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31, where we are this morning, Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone, anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Lord, I'm asking for your help to help our hearts understand the implications of just this simple truth. Lord, when we are looking for other ways to belong outside of what Christ has invited us into, show us that. Show us when we feel that we're not a part of something and we're using anything other than what Jesus has just said right here. Show us where we're wrong. Show us where we are loved. Show us where we are invited in. Lord, that it is by your invitation, not our expectations, not our wants, not our desires that make us a part of this family. It is by you inviting us in. It's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. There are some who might look at Jesus in this moment and think of him as rude. Oh, no, he didn't say that to his mother. There may be some who were kind of saying, uh, dude, you do not back talk your mother in this culture. And in first century Palestine, I mean, it was family name, family honor was everything. So there would have been people sitting among Jesus at this moment going, what in the world? He just told mama, no, you do not do that. Wherever you're raised, you do not say no to your mother. But Jesus was not suggesting, hey, it's okay to disrespect your family. He was also not suggesting what many cult leaders might do in cutting off physical family. Jesus does not ever suggest, as a cult leader might say, it is time to get rid of all natural family relationships. But Jesus does suggest something that the call of God is a greater call than that of family name or family honor. Even family honor comes second place to the sake and call, the invitation of Christ. Throughout Jesus' life, he spoke many tough words. Blessed are those who mourn. You will be persecuted 
you will be hated for my sake. The way you treat the least of these, you actually treat me. These are some of the hardest words to wrestle with, if we're honest. Like, how have you treated the least of these this week? Like, you start thinking about this stuff, and you're like, this is, this is hard. But some of Jesus' hardest words were reserved for those who valued family name first, family honor first, or family opinion above Jesus' invitation. After Jesus had spoken and taught to a crowd with great authority, someone stands up in Luke's gospel and shouts this out, and starting in verse 27. As Jesus was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother and the womb from which you came and the breasts that nursed you. Such a strange thing to yell out in a public place. Jesus replied, But even more blessed are all who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Had Mary simply been cool with giving birth to the rescuer, she would have been in no better off position than you or I. Do you know that? Do you know that just because she carried the Savior of the universe in her body for nine months, it did not set her up above any of us in this room? I think that's hard sometimes to consider, but she, she took care of that child for nine months and then raised him, and that's so hard. She is blessed beyond every woman who's ever lived. And Jesus is like, actually... <laughs> It's hard, right? That's a difficult thing to say. Augustine, the early church father, put it this way. Mary's closeness to Jesus as a natural mother would have been little help for her salvation if she had not borne Christ in her heart. Jesus does something here that begins to help people understand that the, the natural relationship ideas that we have of, of, of what it takes for us to be a part of the family. I mean, Mary could have done that. She's like, I carried him for nine months. I'm in. His family could have said those things. We were around him all the time. So we're in. The Jewish nation actually tried to take claim of Jesus because he was Jewish, and they were children of Abraham, so it made sense to them. We're family, so we're in. This is why Jesus is a stumbling block to every religious person on the planet. Because what it means to be a part of the family of God has nothing to do with our natural outward positions. Jesus changes the game, and that's why he is the stumbling block. Because you fall over this truth, and everything you've got shatters. Because if it's Jesus is saying that, no, 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 to be a part of my family, here is the way. It shatters all the things that we think and choose and decide. Again, referring to family, Jesus tells us later in Mark's gospel, speaking to Peter about all Peter has given up in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 28, then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. There you go. 
And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. So, through faith, congratulations. You just inherited the largest dysfunctional family on the planet. And it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Not only does Jesus stress the importance of understanding how all-consuming the treasure of God's invitation to be a part of his family is, he actually affirms those who, who say, Jesus, you're speaking truth, and he puts a stamp across them, and that new stamp is family. It's family. Whether you had an ideal natural family situation or one of the worst family situations one could grow up in, at the call of Jesus and belief on his name, you and I are covered with a new name. A name that matters more than any name that we could apply to ourselves. And that is his. Whether we looked at Jesus as a stranger, an enemy, an acquaintance, or a close friend, Jesus brings us right into this peculiar intimacy of family. It was not a, a cold, go sit in your cubicle, be about my mission invitation. Go sit in your cubicle, do your tasks, and be a part of the company. This cold, non-relational way of dealing with people, that was not it. Jesus invited us into his living room. Jesus invites us home. That's very different than what many of us may have experienced or may be experiencing right now. And in the way to belong, again, to say, is to know and participate in doing the will of God. In Luke's gospel, he says the, the same kind of phrasing is to hear God's word and obey it. In Matthew's gospel, he says, anyone who does the will of my father, he's my mother, my brother, my sisters. So what is the will of God? you've been in ministry for any, any years, if you've, if you've walked that journey, you've sat with people, and you've tried to decipher the will of God. You in this room probably use that phrase when you're walking around. You're like, what's your will, God? Where do I go to school? What do I, should I marry this person? Should I go to this? Should I do these things, X, Y, and Z? And what we're consumed with as a society is the hidden will of God. The thing that's not known, we want to know. Like, we consume ourselves with it. We get frightened when we're like, oh, no, I don't know God's perfect will, and I don't know this, and I don't know that, and I don't know all of these things. We are consumed with the unknowns, the unknown will of God. But do you know that Genesis to Revelation is the revealed will of God? Like, do you know that Genesis to Revelation, if you don't know what to do, you run to what he already has revealed? You know what he's revealed? Shockingly, his will the work that he asks of us. In John chapter 6, Jesus has just done these great works and great miracles. And the crowds surrounding Jesus say, hey, we want to do that stuff too. What does God want from us? And starting in verse 28, they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Guys, I am absolutely sure of this. If we as the church were more consumed with the revealed will of God, we would not wrestle so much with the unknown will of God. If we were to take God at his words, 
we would not find ourselves blown back and forth, to and fro, circumstances or not circumstances, if we were consumed with his revealed will. God will take care of tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed it. It's one of the promises in the Bible. It's not there. (laughs) You and I only have today. And if we are to consume ourselves with his work, Jesus said, belief. Why belief? My wife and I joke about this all the time. Belief's hard enough. Right? Like to consume yourself with the work of belief, that's hard enough. But the truth is, and this is true in every human being's circumstances, every single human being, what you believe dictates what you do. Religious person or not, irreligious, non-religious, anti-religious, Every single person on this planet lives by a set of beliefs. And the way those beliefs are displayed, not by what you talk about, but by what you do. So is it any wonder that Jesus said the work that God wants you to consume yourself with is to believe on the one he has sent? Because it's in belief that our lives actually begin to live out those things that hit here and hit here. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross. I believe that he purchased for me new life. I believe that he made for me entrance into a new family. So you know what? That dictates how I live. I believe that he poured out his life on the cross, so I pour my life out for my friend, neighbor, stranger, enemy. I believe that that he showed me generosity more than I actually needed on the cross. He poured it out for me, so I, in turn, desire to be a generous person. Jesus welcomed me into his family. He showed me what hospitality looks like, so I will welcome others. You see, what you believe actually affects how you live. So for you and I, the battle all day long is going to be, who do we believe? Do we believe that Jesus is enough? The fact is, for you and I, this family name has now become more important to us than any other name on the planet. And why is that? Because in Christ, we see God, a good father, pursuing us. Isn't that what we wanted in our natural family? Some of us may have had that, some of us may not. But we see in Christ a father who pursues his people. In Christ, Jesus is called our older brother. How many of us longed for an older brother who would just show us the way, who would lead, who would show us, who would guide us? Jesus is that older, perfect older brother. The Holy Spirit comforting and teaching and guiding. This is what we want in our family, right? We wanted people to comfort us, to be generous to us, to forgive us, to show mercy to us. And we have this this trinity, this triune, God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, doing this together, and we're invited into that family. I don't know what your natural family positions were like, but I can tell you that this is what we were made for. And as you saw in this room, as people stood up 
congratulations, you've been adopted in. And you're looking at a room, exactly. <laughs> you have been, you're looking around a room, not at coworkers, but, but family. And it changes everything. In our high school, and I think any good coach would probably do this, but as a, as a basketball player, he tried to emphasize a lot that the jersey name, the name on the front of the jersey mattered way more than the name on the back of the jersey. And any good coach would emphasize that team because when you watch teams that, that are about the individual, they self-destruct. They become a team that's backbiting, name-calling, finger-pointing, talking about how everyone else is failing at what they're supposed to be doing rather than going, we need to do this together. When we ran as a basketball team, if we didn't make it in time and it was one of the big men who was slow, everybody ran again. We had two choices. You could either get mad at Todd or you could get behind him and make him run and push him, get him there. We're doing this together. If one, if, if one of us was behind, we were all behind. It's the same in the, in, the, in the corporate world, in the employee-employer world. If, if you're someone who feels a part of a bigger picture and it's not just about the dog-eat-dog -dog society, that means there's less turnover in the workplace. But when it is only about my walk, my climbing ladder, my, 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 the success of the whole fails. We're trying to figure this out as a family, like trying to communicate to our children that when you do chores, the whole family benefits. When you clean and when you take care of stuff, everybody benefits. We've got this little rock jar system. And so it's like, it's, we, we had started it out as like all their kids had individual rock jars. Where so when they did something great or when there was something that we had to talk to them about, they added, added a rock or we had to take away a rock. That was it. And so they had these jars. And when they fill these jars up, they get the reward. Every, you know, they get to experience these rewards by themselves with mommy or daddy. But we changed that. Now it's just one big rock jar. One big rock jar. And so as these kids do good, and as these things, you know, words fly out of their mouth that shouldn't, or behaviors show up that shouldn't, everybody feels the weight of a rock going in for, yes, we're getting closer to our goal as a family, or, man, rocks have to come out, and we feel the weight as a family. You know, the concept of a new family is stressed all through the New Testament, but yet in America, somehow, we have landed that Jesus is about my personal, private relationship with Him, and it's about me and me alone, and this is why we have people walking around with the mentality that I am the church. Me! I am the church! No, you're not. I just want you to know that. You alone are not the church. Jesus is God's gift to humanity, not you. You need to understand this. You don't reflect the qualities of the Father all in you. You don't reflect the qualities of Jesus all in you. You know what happens when the body of Christ gets together? We actually get a more accurate picture of Jesus. Because the characteristics, the nature of God displayed in all of his people, we just become these little reflectors. Oh man, I don't carry that characteristic of Christ at all in me, but I see it in you. You alone are not the church. But because we live in America where individualism is God, everybody believes, I can do this by myself. The body of Christ exists to do this together. 
to reflect Christ to each other. And you know what happens when we do this together? An unbelieving world actually gets a more accurate picture of who Jesus is. Like I know some of you walk around on your own, like doing that thing where it's just me and Jesus and I'm, but you know what? Sometimes those people that you're with need to see other believers in work loving each other. Because it's in those moments that the world gets a more accurate view of who Jesus is. You alone are not the church. The body of Christ, that's his church. Now, you may have never experienced this generosity or hospitality or kindness or forgiveness in your natural family, but in Christ, you have entered into a family that practices hospitality, generosity, because we have been shown that in the gospel. A lavish, welcoming home. This is why we are the way we are. Not because I never got that when I was a kid, but because I've been given it all as his kid. I have been given all of these things, shown all of these things. All of these things are expressed in Christ on the cross. Now as the band comes and we close our time in response this morning, in his book, Surprise the World, Michael Frost tells of Christ's followers in the fourth century, and this is what he says of them. These ordinary believers devoted themselves to sacrificial acts of kindness. They loved their enemies and forgave their persecutors. They cared for the poor and fed the hungry. In the brutality of life under Roman rule, they were the most stunningly different people any, anyone had ever seen. The Roman Emperor Julian feared the influence of Christ followers in 4th century Rome. He actually thought what they believed was a sickness, like they were actually broken in the head. And so to not be outdone by a bunch of crazy people, he decides to form these feeding programs and hostels to house poor and traveling people through their city. And he demands that the Roman officials and the pagan priests run these operations. If you can see where this is going, it failed dramatically because Roman officials and pagan priests just didn't care. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about the hungry. They didn't care about the travelers. They didn't care about the orphans. They didn't care about the widows because they had never been shown that they had been cared for in that way by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The reason these out-of-their-mind believers were out of their mind, it was because the love of Christ compelled them. They loved each other very well, and the world took note. Christ followers have the supernatural power of the grace of God dwelling in them, fueling hospitality and generosity. Paul speaks of fellow believers as brothers and sisters. John speaks of fellow believers as little children. The common denominator is that they had been marked by faith in Jesus. This wasn't just an intellectually I'm aware, but it was a desire and a commitment to fulfill the will of God together. I honestly can't imagine sitting in that room the moment Jesus sat down and looked at all of them and said, you're my brother. You're my mother. You're my sister. Like the shock of that statement to these men who had no clue what was coming, to hear that they had been welcomed in and invited into a family much bigger than their own, 
would have been shocking. In 1 Peter chapter 1, something has happened. In verse 22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says that obedience is thicker than blood. In a world that says blood is the thickest relation we can actually have, Eugene Peterson suggests, no, it says that loving the will of God, obeying the will of God is actually thicker than blood. Those who were not a part of the family have now been invited in, not because of their blood, but because of our faith and obedience to the will of God, loving his kingdom above all else. Being a doer of the word of God is firstly believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and then learning the depths of that call. Namely, we've been called to a family. Mark 3, 34. Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This morning as we close, there'll be some... Elders and some gel leaders standing over there, ready to receive to pray for you. If you're just kind of at a place where you're like, I just love some prayer, uh, you don't even have to tell them what's going on, but they'd love to pray for you. I'll be over here as well. But this invitation to the family is not by status, priority, abilities, lack of abilities. It's through faith in Christ. And congratulations, you are part of this beautiful, dysfunctional family that trusts the grace of God above all else. Lord, thank you for not leaving us out, but including us. Thank you that you made a way where there was no way. And I pray for those whose hearts in this room may have never experienced a natural family that showed kindness, generosity, hospitality, forgiveness, mercy. But Lord, I pray as they look at Christ, they would learn to do so to their fellow brothers and sisters in this room. Jesus, you are not just our example, but you have met our need. As a, to be a part of this family. Thank you for leading us as a good older brother straight to the Father. In your name we pray.